Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Peggy Taylor and Michael Lerner. Peggy Taylor, welcome to the New School. Thank you. So we're sitting in your living room uh, just before Thanksgiving 2013 uh, in the town of Langley on South Whidbey Island. And looking out at your deck, I can see the water. What is that called, that body of water? Saratoga Passage. Saratoga Passage. It's part of Puget Sound. Part of Puget Sound. And um, we're here because I think you're better at something than anybody I've ever met, which is... um, helping groups of young people or groups of adults and young people somehow catch fire. (laughs) You and Charlie Murphy are the co-founders of an organization called PIE Global, P-Y-E Global. What is that? Okay, PIE stands for Partners for Youth Empowerment. And um, our purpose at, at what we do through PI is work with communities around the world to assist people in um, bringing more depth and meaning to their work with young people. Helping people create programs that really engage teenagers, and teenagers in specific, which has um, really been our speciality since 1990, the late 1990s when we started this work. How did you start it? We started with a, actually, a, um, well, Charlie had been working as a musician and then had left the music world to work at the YMCA for something called the Earth Service Corps because he was really concerned about the media world kids were growing up in. Once he turned into his 40s, he, he started to be really concerned. And um, I had been working as a journalist for many, many years, and then I um, got a master's of education in something called creative arts and learning from Lesley University in Boston. And I came out of that program passionate about the role that the arts could play in bringing people together and bringing people alive. I was a really shy person, and running the magazine, um, I was the editor, I was the publisher. And most the magazine people, being? New Age Journal, mm-hmm. it's called. And um, people usually very often use a magazine editor-in-chief position as a grandstand position to be seen by the world and to speak. And I was so shy that... Uh, I just, I just hit all the time. And one of the hardest things about being the editor was I didn't want to be seen. And, um, and yet, I had a very strong personality. And so when I, that's not, you know, being a very driven, purposeful person within a very shy shell is not a very comfortable way to live. Now, were you an introvert shy, or were you shy but not an introvert? I think I was shy but not an introvert. I think it grew, I think it was connected with the emotional climate of my house growing up. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it was painful. And I went to this program in creative arts and learning, and mainly through theater work, I found my freedom 
but it wasn't theater work being in plays. It was theater work. It was it, it was working with voice, working with body, working with with theater games that engaged the imagination, um, with storytelling. Uh, I already loved singing, so with singing, all of I, I took workshops and classes in all these different arts, and I found a freedom through creative expression that I'd never I'd never experienced. You know, and, and I was like, who needs therapy? All you need to do is get out there and express yourself and you will, you'll, you'll become who you're meant to be, right? And so I used to think of it as, as and I still do in a way, of, of like being able to move from the way we move through life normally and sort of normal consciousness and go through the veil of self-consciousness into what I call theater space or play space where you really feel like yourself, where you feel comfortable in your skin, where you feel comfortable with who you are, and you feel deeply joyful. And so I had this really strong experience in, um, in graduate school. And so how did you get from graduate school to, to your youth. work with youth? Yeah, well, I, I came out of graduate school. I'd been running this magazine, and, and um, I realized that we had needed this kind of creative... I had needed this when I was running the magazine because I was in a very creative job and, and we were up against it all the time. And What I wanted to do was do creativity consulting for small progressive organizations, nonprofit organizations, creative organizations that couldn't afford the big-time consulting fees um, because... Um, you know, we needed it as much as anybody, but we couldn't afford it, right? And so I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that, but this part of me, that the part of me that um, was connected to my own creativity, I got a lot of messages growing up around not being creative, who are you to think you could have something to offer, all those kind of messages about creativity. I think that my father, the message I got from my father is there's room in the world for maybe three great violinists and maybe five great pianists, and if you're not one of them, don't bother. Now, I'm sure he would turn over in his grave if you heard that, but that's the message I got. And um, so... I wanted to do this creative consulting, but I I didn't uh, I couldn't do it unless I had a partner. I was so I was waiting for a partner, and one day and I waited for three four years. I was still working at the magazine, and one day Joanna Macy called and uh, said she wanted um, my husband Rick and I to come over to the Whidbey Institute here on Whidbey Island to meet a friend of hers named Charlie Murphy, and so we went over and. Um, I met him, and he was talking about work he was doing with young people. And as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, that's the partner I've been waiting for. Mm. So it wasn't working with companies. It was working with youth and adults. Mm. But it was all the same. It was all the same principles. And so um, a year later, Charlie was putting on a, a, a weekend or a five-day gathering at the Whidbey Institute for Teens and Adults, and so I jumped in and said I'd help him. And uh, it, was, it was a most amazing five days. We had kids from 
big range of cultures. Uh, we had, and the same with adults, and we spent five days uh, making music, making art, sharing our stories, talking about what we cared about, and um, really building that creative community together. And I, I would say nobody was the same again afterwards. When you say nobody was the same again, I've heard that about your work with uh, teenagers before. What are the kinds of changes that are lasting that a five-day program can bring about? Well, you know, um, the most common feedback we get from youth is uh, this was the first time I ever felt like I could be myself. And I just kept thinking, wow, that's really... You know, that's really sad. Um, and yet what I think it means is that it's the first time they felt that freedom within the context of their peers, within the context of a wider community of people, um, to, to be that secret part of themselves that they can't let out to be the to be the person who really cares and dares to care and the person who really has big dreams but doesn't dare to share them and the person who has big fears but doesn't dare to share them and it's almost like um, what we do when we when we get a group of, of kids and adults together the first thing we really pay attention to is how we begin and we go through a very um, a very conscious beginning process, which in our mind, we've just written a book called uh, Catch the Fire about our work, and there's a chapter on how to begin programs. So and how it, do you begin? And, and at the end, but at the end of it, I, I, I wrote, if you don't read any other chapter in this book, just read that. So how do you begin? So um, we begin by, um, when people arrive, they immediately have an opportunity to take a small creative risk. And so usually it's make creative name tags. If it's a longer camp, uh, everybody might make posters about themselves. But some kind of, of creative expression that isn't, um, it's very low. Low risk. Low risk. Now, you know, for some people, making a creative name tag is a little higher risk than for others. But if you're there at the table with them and just say, oh, you know, just throw a couple of feathers on and and um, it and glue them on, it'll make a great name tag. So you can be there to kind of ease the process a bit. Uh, what happens, you've got a person coming into a space, coming into a, a, a new group, and it's probably one of the most emotionally polarized times both within, within a person. It's like, did I really want to come here? You know, how am I coming off? Do people like me? Do I like them? Do you know what's this all about? Is it worth my time? Anytime we enter a new group of people, there's that that moment of uncertainty. And so as soon as you put your hand to something simple and creative, it's the way I think of it is it it, it ignites the right brain and it puts us in more of a sense of balance, takes us out of our worry puts us in even a mini flow state. Uh, and so ease, ease occurs. There's, there's kind of a letting down of the, of the barriers. And also, if I'm, if I'm sitting at a table with you, I've never met you, Michael, and all these other people I've never met, um, 
and the program's not beginning yet, you know, we're kind of, what do we do? If we can just sit there and make name tags, I can just, my first contact with you can simply be, you know, do you know where the scissors are? Which is much easier than, oh, what do you do or who are you? You know, and so there's a kind of a gentle camaraderie that happens as people enter this creative but low-risk space. So where do you take it from and so making name tags? Or? So from there, and this is, this is foundational to our, to our approach, is that over the course of the life of a group, you very gently and slowly raise the creative risk level and the opportunity to be creatively expressive both within and without, both within one's own self through doing art and and without through speaking to a whole group, through poetry, through storytelling, through singing. And um, you slowly, slowly, slowly raise the risk level. And so what happens um, every time you take a creative risk you know, how do you feel when you take a creative risk? Depends on how it goes. Assuming it can't go bad. Assuming it can't go bad. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, my honest answer is I have to think about it because I don't... I, I haven't lived my life in a way that I label how do I feel when I take a creative risk, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Uh, I know that if I rephrase it, if you ask me, how do I feel when I do something that feels creative to me? Uh My answer to that is it makes me feel good. And it can make me feel good if I'm in a lot of pain, Mm -hmm. uh, I can decide and do to... uh, take some crayons and just freehand draw and do a whole series of drawings. And at first it may be sort of rage and sorrow or whatever. Mm. And then gradually the drawings modulate out if I do a series. So I know, Mm. and also journaling and other things. So I can certainly say that creativity is helpful to me. Mm I don't usually label it as increasing levels of creative risk, so that's how I'd have to approach mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so so you're talking about kind of one side of what happens when mm-hmm. you enter into the creative process, mm-hmm. and on the other, or, or when you're actually creatively expressing, mm-hmm. on the other side is that moment of the blank page. Mm-hmm. Um, every time that you face that blank page, there's kind of a feeling of, oh, no, for a lot of people anyway. And, and then you, especially if you're, like, say, playing a theater game with people and you have to come up with something, some little tiny thing. Maybe you just have to act out something that you love to do and the group has to guess. When it comes to your turn around the circle, there's that moment of, you know, and then you do it. And then the group gets what you did, and there's kind of a mm. that comes back to you from the group. Mm. And there's that um, feeling of like, whoa, you know, 
I actually came up with a worthy idea. It was received by my community, and I was seen, and um, and it feels good. So let me let me engage with you here for a minute because I know very often when I am asked to do something like that in a group. Um, and I haven't sort of signed up for it. Mm-hmm. Number one, I feel a little coerced. <laughs> Number two, I am often horrified by how badly it's done. <laughs> uh, by, how, by how badly what's done? The, the people who are facilitating mm-hmm. this. And from what I've seen of the work that you and Charlie and your husband Rick and others do with this in mixed groups of adults and children, which I've, uh, young people, which I've witnessed a lot, mm-hmm. what really made me want to have this conversation with you is that you and Charlie and Rick and Victoria Santos and others that you work with are unbelievably good at this. And so I guess I want to distinguish between how I feel when I am given an opportunity, because even when you guys do it and you ask me to take a creative risk, I'm one of those people that really didn't want to sign up for the, you know. For, right. I hate having process done on me. I know. You know? I just do I. It. I just hate it. <laughs> and so even if it's done well, I have resistance. I know. But you guys do it so well that it overcomes my resistance. But when it's not done well... It drives me nuts. Yeah. Yeah. So that has to do with starting at the right risk level and knowing that the slightest creative risk will start moving people into the flow state. Mm -hmm. It'll start moving them into that more Mm -hmm. balanced right-left brain state or however you want to look at it. Um, And so, for example... So you really have to kind of talk people into it. So part of it is to, I like to, like you have to tip your hat to the resistance. If you tip your hat to the resistance, you you um, you kind of um, get people before their resistance can really get hold. Mm-hmm. So for example, say you want to, um, you're going to go around and you say, everybody please say your name and the work you do with some kind of group but now you're going to add a little creative thing to it like um, so and then we want you to mime something you love to do okay so my reaction to that if I was sitting in the group would be oh brother (laughs) right right brother oh please (laughs) and I think one reason Charlie and I are so good at leading creative group processes Mm -hmm. because we are the people who sit with our arms crossed in the corner we I am the, the person. We I'm, are the people your facilitators abs- argue against. Right? We are the most resistant. I always sit in the last seat next to the door. Yeah, me too. Yeah, you, I'm, you've seen me do that. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, I always want to be able to right. get out. As far away as possible. Right. But what I also know about myself <laughs> is that I will become the most enthusiastic uh-huh. participant. Uh-huh. If it's and, done right. Yeah. And so, so what do you do? So you say, okay... So we're going to ask everybody to mime something they love to do. Now, when you say it like that, you're actually throwing out a little, like, zinger there. Because somebody who, then somebody might, what do you mean mime, you know? Okay, so we just want you to act out something. And then you, you um, 
You say, it can be as easy as this. And you might just put your hands up as if you're reading. So you give a super easy option. And so, you know, if it's me, the resistant one, I'd go, oh, yeah, well, I can do that. Right. Right. And um, so it can be as easy as this. Or, you know, if if you're feeling very adventurous, Adventurous, you might even stand up and act something out. It's just it, whatever anybody wants to do. And what happens is you set up a, a process whereby, as each person mimes their little thing, um, there's there's something really pleasing about seeing someone do something without words. Well, also, it shows a totally different aspect of their. Their personality. Totally different. Totally different. So they've gone out of their normal just maybe sitting the way they might be at the beginning of a group and just sort of sitting and, right. you know, feeling... Totally mental. Yeah. Mm. And suddenly they're, you know, maybe it's the person who does the... that just does the book, puts just copies exactly what the facilitator said. Mm-hmm. But um, the when the group gets it, which they usually get most of the things there's there's almost like a collective ah that comes back and don't, now don't people in the group at least when i've seen it done they try to guess what it is that the person yeah, or, done, yeah. Right? and they might say oh you're reading mm-hmm. and everybody kind of goes ah mm-hmm. and so you have a, a kind of a um there's a camaraderie that develops in the recognition of what the colleagues are all doing. Mm-hmm. This is this all sounds kind of really stupid simple because it really is stupid simple. In fact, one of the problems Charlie and I have had along the years is like what we do is so not rocket science and yet we have to say that we don't really see this particular approach taken. Well, and it's not rocket science. But trust me, you guys are unbelievably skillful at it. Right. Because we've all been in conferences and workshops right. where something is, you know, the normal talking heads is broken up by right. some kind of, quote, process. Right. And it is somewhere between okay and horrific a lot of the time, you know? I mean, really. You right. Know? So again, it's like it's like it's like this very. It's quite nuanced. Right. Right. Um, it's simple, but it's not easy. So the things you're thinking of is, you want to get people to move their bodies a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. You want to get people to spark the imagination. When you spark the imagination, and there's any kind of body movement, um, at all. It begins to change things up. It changes the energy up. So here, here's the thing. Um, here's kind of the overall arc of what happens. You begin when you're working with a group um, with something, as I said before, super low level of, of, of risk. And then you very, very slowly raise that. So the way it works with uh, the opening of a, of a youth conference, for example, with youth and adults, um, you start, they make name tags, they're doing art, then they sit down. And then we usually start with a group rhythm. And uh, so we ask everybody to stand up and the leader just starts walking and says, walk with me in place and we're going to build a group rhythm together and just follow me and you'll be able to do it. Okay, so you're embedding also in your words, 
in your you're embedding a lot of permission um, to not do it right, and you're embedding a lot of, of encouragement that you can't fail. And that's part of it um, is, but you do it in, in a kind of way like, um, like this isn't about making great art or being like good creative. It's just about jumping in and doing stuff. So you get people to begin doing this rhythm, which we have up on our website. And we have used a very simple clapping rhythm um, all over the world. How does the clapping rhythm go? Well, you start by walking, and then you it, and then you say, um, I want you to clap on the one of a four-beat count, and a one, two, three, four, and a one. And then from there, it builds to da-da, going to your shoulder, and then da-da-da, both shoulders, and da-da-da-da-da, shoulders and and thighs, and the final beat is like this. Wait. So this, it looks complicated, it seems complicated, but it's actually, for 98% of people, it's actually quite easy. So here you are, they've made their name tags, they're coming together as a group, you're leading them in this rhythm, and uh, they, at first when they see it, they think there's no way they're going to get it, and Within three or four minutes, the whole group is in synchrony with each other. They're in rhythmic sync with each other. And they have accomplished something they thought they couldn't do. Mm-hmm. This is like basic, you know, behaviorist stuff, really. So so the whole group has has this sense of success before you've even said a word to them, really, other than let's lead, let's do this rhythm together. Mm-hmm. And then you get the rhythm going in two parts and maybe three parts or four parts like a round. And, you know, so you've been together as a group for five or six minutes and suddenly this group feels like an accomplished, mm-hmm. you know... Rhythm section. Rhythm section. And um, and then you just, you know, say sit down, so ask them to sit down. And so you've already you've done two things that uh, have people out of their out of their left brain... Place and I think, you know, a lot of it is that that our our mainstream Western society is so habitually stuck in the the more linear side of ourselves that anything you do to release that, to pull people out of that, to bring more balance, brings a sense of relief. Mm-hmm. So so we we do that, and then we. Um, you know, do a little hello, and then we ask people to introduce themselves. And that this is basic group processes. Within the first few minutes of a time of a group being together, you want to get every voice out in the room. Right. And if you have a big group, you can do it by, you know, raise your hand if you're from California, raise your hand if you're from Canada, or stand up and cheer. You can do it in big groups. Right. But if it's a small group, you can start right around and, and do introductions. And But even when, like I said, even when we do introductions, then we'll throw in a little creative like piece to it. Like mime something. Like mime like something you love to do. Right. So, so you've got your group together, and by now they've mimed something they love to do. They've done this rhythm, and you kind of have people in the palm of your hand by then. They're mm-hmm. feeling... There's something about seeing other people take a little creative risk and act a little silly that makes it okay for you to act mm-hmm. silly and um, or act playful. You're listening to a conversation with Peggy Taylor and Michael Lerner at the New School at Commonweal. 
One of the things that you do that I find so powerful is the group uh, singing stuff that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we did this round uh, when we did, uh, as I, uh, as you know, the piece, I've, I've been the involved piece with the summer gatherings that you and Rick uh-huh. and Charlie do up at Hollyhock Conference Center on uh, Cortez Island in British Columbia and the winter gatherings that you do using these same methods at the Whidbey Institute on Whidbey Island where you live. And uh, and then we've just tried a fall gathering at Commonweal for mm-hmm. the first time. Again, because I've been so deeply intrigued. I mean, this was not a small thing to undertake, but we gathered, you know, 40, 50 people together because I really wanted to see if the technology could be transferred as you transferred it from Hollyhock to the Whidbey Institute. I wanted mm-hmm. to see if we could transfer it to Commonweal. And one of the things that moved me most, as you know, was this round that mm-hmm. you do. It's called the Peace Round. Is that this what This is it? A, um, called the Peace Chant, and it peace was put chant. together by a, a singer named Sophia down in L.A. Right. And it, it has it's from five different religions. Right. So can you just, what are the five little pieces? Can you just sing them so that people yeah. can hear the... It's um, from the Buddhist tradition. Om Mane Padme Hum Om Mane Padme Hum So that's the first part. Mm-hmm. The next is from the Muslim tradition. La ilaha illallah La ilaha illallah Allah And then um, the next one is Shalom Shanti. Mm-hmm. Shalom Shanti. Shalom Shanti. And um, and then it's the Christmas Carol. Gloria in excelsis Put those four parts together, and you have an instant, you have instant beauty. It's astonishingly beautiful. Mm-hmm. It is truly astonishingly beautiful. It, it is on the web. Uh, one can find it on the web. Uh, there's a permaculture group. In fact, I thought maybe a permaculture group was the first one to do this. But mm-hmm. okay, but there's uh, a permaculture group doing this peace chant or whatever on YouTube. But. And I just take that as an example because the things that you bring together are so beautiful. And um, and so it builds creative community. Um, and you say it's not rocket science, and I agree with that. But I think the thing that must be understood is that to do this well... To have the group catch fire uh, is a skillful, creative act mm-hmm. in itself. It, it, it may not be rocket science, but it, it, there is an endless amount of skill that one can bring to building it. Well, let me go back to, we have four basic, we call them the big ideas in our right. work. And the first is that we are all creative. Right. And um, two... Too many people like us walk around thinking we're not creative. Right. And um, that's because creativity has been over-identified with 
magnificent art making. Right. And I use the word magnificent too because it's the masters. The masters are the creative ones and the rest of us are just, you know, part of the great mass of uncreative people. And when in fact creativity is one of our basic capacities as a human being, it's that energy that goes through us. And so to deny it, it's been denied in us by cultural beliefs around creativity. Um, I most simply put, I mean, there's many definitions of creativity, but I like to think of it as thinking things up and being able to make them happen. It's it's igniting the imagination and letting it come into reality. So making a breakfast is a creative act. Making, you know, I was editor and publisher of New Age Journal for the first seven years, or for, for much of that time, and so I always laugh when people talk about the suits versus the creative ones, because the, being the publisher of that magazine was just as creative. Most things that people do, entre, entrepreneurs are incredibly creative. Coming up with a budget for an organization is a creative act, sometimes a very creative act. But um, And so we are all creative. If you're born a human, you're creative. That's our first Thing. Right. The second is is, is um, that you don't have to be uh, an experienced artist to use the arts and all kinds of creative practices in your work with groups, um, whether it's working with kids, whether it's running a meeting, whatever, whether it's just you know making your business go better. You you can um, use all kind of creative um, games and activities without ever having had experience in those. And particularly with working with kids, you just have to be kind of one step ahead of them. That's all, mm -hmm. really. And the third is that uh, we all have, as human beings, that we all have a valid desire to be seen and heard. And that, that the arts really give us that um, opportunity. So if you look at older cultures where everybody is you know, in the percussion ensemble or everyone's dancing, people are seen by each other all the time and they're heard. And whereas in Western culture, it's like you don't get to be in the orchestra unless you're good already. You don't get to be in the band unless you're good already or in the art show. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, even storytelling has been professionalized. Mm -hmm. And so we've lost the opportunity to be to, to be seen and heard in our just funky humanness. And then finally, that the, door, that the arts are the doorway to the soul or to the inner life. And so that um, it's, it's what you were talking about earlier. When you start to, to draw, when you're in pain or not feeling well, you start to draw and it, it just opens the door to, to so another place. Because they're so important. The first is we're all creative. Mm -hmm. The second is you can use creativity in your daily life. And you can use it in your work with your groups. Work. The third is... The third is that we all have a valid desire to be seen and heard. We all want to be seen and heard. And finally, that the arts are the doorway, the doorway to, the to the soul. Soul right. or the spirit or right. the inner life. Right. Now, in your new book, um, uh, Catch the Fire, mm -hmm. um, I want to just kind of go over the table of contents for a moment. So part one, the call for creative community, the creative imperative, chapter one, an arts-based model for change, chapter two, the creative spark, chapter mm -hmm. three. Um, just starting there, 
we understand the creative impar imperative and the arts-based model for change we've talked about. What do you mean by the creative spark? Well, that chapter, the title of that chapter refers to um, the way the creative community model, we call it the creative community model, the when we put all our work together into a model, the way it's being used in different situations. Because we, we started it for these um, youth camps of 70 people. Um, and yet the, the basic principles and practices can be used in a small meeting, in a one-hour workshop, in a one-year course. I mean, they, they can be stretched out and used in all different situations. So we give a lot of examples in that chapter of different ways people have applied these principles and practices. So then part two is called Six Elements of the Community Experience. First, uh, chapter four, Powerful Beginnings, Building a Community. Chapter five, Theme-Based Sessions, Bringing Learning Alive. Chapter six, Engaged Reflection, Making Sense of It All. Chapter seven, Community Arts Happenings, Becoming Creators of Culture. Chapter eight, uh, Conscious Closing, Optimizing the Learning. Chapter 9, Empowering Performance, Getting Our Voices into the World. Right. So if you were to go over those six elements, uh, say a little about each of them. Okay. So the beginnings, we, we talked a little bit about the beginnings, but where we would go, uh, say, with a, with a, with a week-long youth camp, um, our beginning or our community building process would be probably two or three hours long. We'd take the time to do it. And that's one thing. People are afraid to take the time um, and want to get into the real stuff. Um, taking the time to begin to get to know each other, get our voices out. And so so we start with with the, the visual arts and then we start with the rhythm and then uh, we we talk about our goals and our agreements. And, you know, agreements are really important if you want to set up a safe community for, for expression. And so our, our basic agreements with young people and with most of our adult programs as well are, is, number one, no put-downs of self or other. Now, of course, nobody's going to be able to just cut that negative voice out of their head but you know it's the idea of let's try to create a put down free zone for ourselves and each other and you would be surprised kids love that they are so relieved to be in a week long community where everyone's at least agreeing to try to, to, to leave the put downs aside no put -downs. Yeah. second is um, be willing to try new things and third is Listen well, participate fully, and um, respect yourself, this place, and this place with kids. Mm -hmm. And, of course, with kids, we, we also have to have some non-negotiables around drugs, sex, and that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, so we set up through, first of all, our goals of why we're here. You mean you don't here. need those with adults? Not usually. They can take care of themselves. It's up to them. But with kids, we're responsible for them, so it's it's kind of horrifying you know, on that level. Right, right. But so so we do we do goals and agreements, and then we um, we usually do name games. And name games are um, they're they're repetitive, they're rhythmic, and they're imaginative. And um, if if you do that, and people start playing them, before you know it, they they just they lose their resistance. So what's a name game? 
Um, it might be that, uh, you know, you're standing in a circle of eight people and the first person has to come up with uh, a name, uh, an adjective that, so that begins with the same sound as their name. So it might be like powerful Peggy, okay? I so I have to make a shape. So I might thrust my arm up and go, powerful Peggy, and then everybody in my circle copies me. Powerful Peggy. Now, right there, mm -hmm. and I, I, I still go back to the technical stuff, I have been seen and heard for my little mm -hmm. idea. Mm -hmm. And I've faced that. I've got to come up, oh, you know, what can I come up with? It's okay. And I come up with it, and I dare to do it, because I kind of have to do it, mm -hmm. you know. Powerful Peggy. And I get it back, and, I, and there's just right in that one moment right there, there's this boost of self-esteem. Mm -hmm. It's it's kind of crazy because in you know, I think um, we're all little kids inside, mm -hmm. and then the next person comes up with what would you come up with for Michael? Boy, I was thinking about that. <laughs> I mean, mischievous Michael was the first. Okay, thing. right. Okay, and so you come up with a sh so do some kind of movement with it. Mischievous Michael. Okay, so you you put your arms up, and so we all you say it, and then we all go mischievous Michael. <laughs> How do you feel even in this yeah, moment? You're right. you're right. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. So then we go back to me and we all say, powerful Peggy. Mm -hmm. And then we go, mischievous Michael. <laughs> you know, and then maybe the next person is named uh, Dale. So, you know, that person might go put their arms around themselves and go, dear Dale. And then we all go, Dear Dale, powerful Peggy, Miss, you know, mischievous Michael, dear Dale. Well, there's, by the time you do that around a group of eight, you've got those names. They're, they're like in your memory. You can be a person who can't, rem thinks you can't remember names at all. And there's something about, you know, you've got the associative thinking. Because mm -hmm. suddenly I'm thinking of you as mischievous. And... Plus, I've got your movement, mm -hmm. and I've got the look on your face that happens when you say it, right. and uh, and I've repeated it, and so we've gotten to do rhythm as we go around mm -hmm. saying these, and and by the time you go around the group, you've got it, you've got it down, mm -hmm. and yet you've accomplished so much more than just learn the names, because I can see you stand sitting here right now, you've got this <laughs> mischievous look on your on your face. <laughs> It's, it's just crazy how simple yeah, we yeah, are. Yeah. And so we do name games. We do several different name games. And then, you know, we talk about a little about the program and this and that. And then at the end of the evening, we, uh, at our camps, we have what we call family groups where one group, it's a group that gets together every night after supper to do some reflection for about 45 minutes. And so it's kind of like a home-based group of youth How and adults. They're usually six youth and three adults. Mm -hmm. And um, and our, our, our programs are deeply intergenerational. One of our, our um, philosophies is that the adults participate fully right with, along with the youth. And so they really become very close, these groups of nine. The adults at the same time are fully cognizant of their responsibility as adults, and they're fully cognizant of, of the boundaries that they must keep, both in terms of what they share about their personal life and, you know. But on the other level, they join in all the workshops, they take creative risks right along with the Do they need training before they do the workshop? Surprisingly little. Okay. People are so ready to jump into this. Mm -hmm. 
Um, we do have a staff meeting, and we have tra two-day trainings um, on creative facilitation that we prefer people take before they come to a camp. Mm -hmm. But they do fine even if they don't. Mm -hmm. So um, so we, we have everybody get into their groups, and they have to... Um, First of all, they introduce themselves and, you know, one hope and fear for the week. Then they have to come up with a cheer, a name for their group and a cheer. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the evening ends with each group performing for the whole group. Now, a cheer is, again, is very low risk, but it's higher risk than doing that original clapping thing, right? You know, I, I can't, this comes to mind. This wouldn't make it as one of your cheers, but when my son Josh was uh, a student at Reed and he was playing rugby and um, there was a girls' rugby group that was on before his game came up. And so these cherubic young women got together to do their Reed cheer and it goes yeah. like this. It goes, Nietzsche is mad. God is dead. The world is ugly and people are sad. Go read. Okay. <laughs> well, that would not have made it, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, you could have done that. Oh, sure, because then they'd say, we are the... Right. We are the mad, bad, Nietzsche, God-lover group, <laughs> okay. right? You know, they, they come up okay. with anything. They come All up right. with the, you know, marshmallow pink elephants, and then they okay. come up with the why they're okay. some... But in other words, that doesn't go against your put-down negativity thing to have a cheer like that. No. Okay. Because what are they you putting do down? That. I don't know. They're having fun. Nietzsche. <laughs> oh, poor Nietzsche. <laughs> he can deal with it. He's a grown-up. But that would be probably a little more sophisticated right, that no, you I would agree. find at one no, of our camps. <laughs> but the operating principle here is that they've been together for three hours and they are performing right. for a group of 70 people. Right. But guess what? Mm-hmm. The performance doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. The content doesn't mm -hmm. matter. Mm -hmm. And so what they're getting is the experience of just daring to be up there and to be seen by their community. And this is all on the first day. This is all on the first day. I'm telling you, by the end of the first night, mm -hmm. you've got it made. Mm -hmm. And people say, um, I mean, people will come to our trainings because... Um, in our two-day training, the first couple of hours is a community-building process, mm -hmm. basically to show people how to do it. Right. Um, and they'll say, I don't know why, but you know, I just felt so comfortable so quickly. Right. And um, I don't understand. And, we'll, and we were out in Spokane. The first time Charlie and I did a, a training of teachers, one of the teachers, it was this incredible alternative school out there, and one of the teachers had set the training up. We'd done a community training, and then these teachers from the alternative school got all these teachers and school administrators and whatever to come to this training at their school. And he pulled us aside right before. It was 35 people. He pulls us aside, and he says, um, Charlie and Peggy, I just want to warn you. I don't want you to be disappointed. Teachers are awful. <laughs> They're the worst people in workshops. You are going to have a horrible time. <laughs> We're like, oh, okay. <laughs> it worked. I mean, it was perhaps one of the best groups we've uh -huh. ever had. Uh -huh. Because actually, I think, and, and I found this about in my work, I've worked with, uh, I hadn't really worked with teachers, youth workers, mm. school counselors, people that work with kids, older kids, teens before. And um, I think that that a lot of them are drawn to teaching, drawn to youth work, drawn to being 
um, working with kids because they actually want to want to be in a creative ex- right. um, profession. It's their they're very creatively ready to go people, mm-hmm. but then the system the system just takes them down. The system takes them down, and so you go in with like, okay, here's here's you know, and when we work with teachers, we basically say. You can do all this right within the framework of the tests and all that. We, you can become a stealth community builder in your school. You can become a stealth change maker by because. Well, I'll give the example. My friend Jackie Amatucci. She was a um, teacher. She'd been working. She worked as a teacher, English teacher. And she'd worked also with very challenging kids in a one-room school for adjudicated youth. Um, and she came to one of our trainings, and she just uh, realized that she could begin to bring all this creativity stuff into her classroom. And so one of the things, well, we, you, you had talked at the book, and part of it is that you, that you structure any learning activity or any group coming together, you have a beginning and you have an end. It's kind of old ritual structure. You mm-hmm. have a beginning and you have an end. Mm-hmm. And so how does how does a classroom generally start? Mm-hmm. Not really. I mean, everybody's just kind of, and then the teacher kind of making noise, and, and then the teacher pulls it, mm-hmm. them into attention. And the ending is the bell goes off, mm-hmm. which is very jarring. So what Jackie started to do was, at the beginning of her class, she would spend five minutes doing some kind of creative game or activity. And at the end of her class, she would end the class three minutes early. She would end it with a conscious closing, either how's everybody feeling as we, as we close today, everybody say one word, or she'd find some way to end it. And she'd give them the last three minutes to just talk with each other and get ready to go so that the bell was not the thing that dictated it. So she devoted maybe 10 minutes, maybe even less, out of the time of her class time to the community building. And, um, and she got so much more done in the intervening time. You know, people talk about readiness, readiness to learn. You know, if you're going to be teaching a class of kids, working with a class of kids for 40 minutes, they walk into your classroom and you've got to do something to bring them into that readiness, that learning zone. And it's just not something that's paid attention to. So the next chapter after Powerful Beginnings, Building a Community, theme-based sessions bringing learning alive. What's the, well, what's this the... is something we do with young people. We call them plenary sessions. And basically, um, how do you set up and lead an interactive experiential learning session on a theme? Like so what? maybe What's the theme? So a theme might be your relationship to your creativity. Okay. It might be your relationship to other people. You know, okay. might be um, beginning to understand some social justice issues. It might be about activism, learning from difference, uh, learning from nature. Our our themes at our camps are um, is ex- expanding your own creativity, learning from people different than than yourselves, learning from nature, exploring your inner life and finding ways to use your creativity to make change in the world. So our plenaries at camp tend to follow those general themes. It's a little like what Parker Palmer talks about when he talks that we use his third objects for, you know, to enhance 
creative relationship and his work. In other words, when you set up a theme, it's like a third object. It's mm-hmm. like everybody's going to talk about that. And mm-hmm. so there's a way of relating to each other that is different mm-hmm. when that's going on from when it's not, in some sense. Say more. Well, uh, you know, Parker Palmer will work with a poem or something uh-huh, like that. He'll, everybody will read a poem, but it doesn't have to be a poem. People use music or something else. Uh, uh, my colleague, Oren Slosberg, who created uh, this, uh, developed uh, visual thinking strategies, uh, projects a painting up for people to respond to. So the thing is that anytime you provide a third object, whether it's a poem or a piece of music or a painting or something else, and say to people, what's going on here? You know, how do you respond to it? Uh, then people recognize that everybody in the group is having a different response, and so there's something happening. So it's just likening your theme-based sessions, whether it's about social justice or creativity. There's some third object that's set up, or a third topic. Well, we do it through, I'd say, through an experiential education approach. So mm-hmm. people have a shared experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and for example, in, in, in our trainings, creative facilitation trainings, we um, use a visualization where people imagine that the creative part of themselves is their creative spirit. If that language works for them, we ask them to edit it if it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the visualization, they go to the place where their creative spirit lives, invite the creative spirit to come visit them there, and um, talk to their creative spirit about how they can empower their creative spirit to help them and how their creative spirit can help them become more fully expressive. You're listening to a conversation with Peggy Taylor and Michael Lerner at the New School at Commonweal. Hmm. And um, we do that with youth as well. Hmm. Sometimes that will be part of the the plenary for youth. I get it. And so when people start talking about their experiences... They're so, you know, the instructions are the same, but the experiences are so different. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, William James, the variety of religious experiences. Exactly. Our, our inner lives are so vast and so, so, so what is interesting. The next chapter, Engaged Reflection, Making Sense of It All. What's that about? Well, you know, in, in education, reflection is... That's where the learning gets cemented, right? Mm-hmm. That's where the learning is brought home. Mm-hmm. And um, in service learning, for example, there's a whole there's so many theories about service learning where youth go out, they do something in their community, and then they reflect on it, right? And what we find is that people do reflection as 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 almost like a prescribed oh, now we have to reflect and we've got to ask these questions and what is the relevance of this? And they'll go into a very mental, um, place. mental place, right? right? And so our, our view is um, make, if you find ways to have people express around reflection, so they might do creative writing, they might write a song as a group. They might put together a, a skit, or they might do um, some kind of dance to reflect 
on what they learned. They might come up with a, a theater activity where they do a slideshow of what was important to them, but they, they are the figures in the slideshow. Um, if you make the reflective process itself creative... Expressive. ...and expressive, it, um, it really cements the learning. And also, you by using a variety of different art forms, you... you provide a location or a place for all the different learners in your group. Mm -hmm. yeah. So then the next chapter is on community arts happenings, becoming creators of yeah. culture. Well, so this is, this is um, and one of Charlie's phrases from very early on is, this week we're all going to be uh, creators of culture rather than passive consumers. You know, we've been letting the, the media industry provide all our entertainment, and we're perfectly capable of that, and we're going to learn that we can do that this week. And so each evening at our camps is a group creative um, experience. And so the second night of camp, we always do a theater improv night, and we... We did a bit of that at the fall gathering at Commonweal, but the purpose Which was of it hysterical. I mean, I I don't remember laughing that hard. I literally fell over laughing. I, two people told me that. <laughs> I literally fell over laughing. Yeah. I mean, you had you had this process going on. Let me see if I can remember this. First of all, you just got four people, the volunteers, to go. Was it four or five to go stand up? And the deal was that they had to face the wall, and then one of them had to turn around. And as soon as another turned around, the one who had turned around had to turn back and face the wall. Was mm -hmm. it four or five people? Five. Five. So that's hard enough, right? I mean, it, that was funny in itself. You know, they couldn't get it right, right? And then the next deal was okay, now. Each of you starts telling a story mm -hmm. every time you turn around. And as soon as somebody else turns around, you have to stop and face the wall again. But then when you turn around again, you pick up your story where you were before. So, so you have like five, five parallel stories going on going that on. keep interrupting each right. other. Yeah. And then the third thing, which made it unbelievable, was you then got another four people to get up whose job was to mime what was going on in each story. Right? But the stories kept interrupting each other. So you had these people miming these five stories that kept intersecting. And it just was the funniest thing I've ever seen, mm -hmm. just about. You know, I mean, so just as an example, I mean, you had lots of other, I mean, you must have a repertoire of a hundred or more different. You know, it's really okay. interesting how far you can go with a really small repertoire. Oh, really? Like, like yeah. we find the things that work and uh, we use them to death oh, you because mm -hmm. they're so simple yeah. and so basic. And I think um, one of my advantages is that I'm not a theater person. Right. And I was terrified in my earlier days. I mean, if somebody had said, we are going to do theater improv, I would have, I already would have. Been left the, the conference, <laughs> right? And um, and so so I work with it in a way that's like super super yeah. super simple. And um, theater people, on the other hand, they're they're a little bit immune. They forget what it's like to be that cold, 
beginner. And so they'll often, it's very hard for them to to really pull back mm-hmm. and be at that real basic level. Mm-hmm. And and I know for both Charlie and I, we've had people tell us, oh, well, we just love you leading theater because you're not good at it. Right. And it really makes us feel like we can do it. <laughs> and so, you know, you have to be careful if you're good at theater mm-hmm. or if you're good at singing or any of the arts that you don't, um, that you try to just kind of pull yourself back to normal Normal beginner level, so that so that you're really empowering other people to step up mm-hmm. there with you. Mm-hmm. So when you say how far you can go with a limited repertoire, but what if you were to guess? I agree, maybe you can go far with a limited repertoire. But how many different shticks do you carry around in your your quiver with you? You know, how many different? Well, our book um, Catch the Fire has probably every activity I ever use. So how many plus more? That? A mm, hundred. That's what I would have guessed. About a yeah. hundred different, yeah. For different situations. And, and different but situations. The thing so is... When you're doing this live yeah. with a group of adults and young people, which is my direct experience, not the teenage work, right. and you, you're watching what's going on with the group, and depending on what's going on in the group, you're picking from this repertoire of a hundred different things right. what's going to happen next. You don't know what's going to happen next, with some exception. I mean, you may have some general idea, but you'll see something going on, and you'll say, "Let's do X." Right. Right, and that's where it gets fun to be a solo solo facilitator because right. you don't have to you don't have to negotiate with your negotiate facilitator. With right. <laughs> because when I mean, my experience when when I really get into it, it's it's like the the devil takes over. Right. I mean, I just, I love it so much. I love working with a group who are who are doing theater improv together, but not the kind, it's not in order to become good actors. No, no. It's not. And, well, this uh, is the whole idea of the expressive arts. And the expressive arts, as you know really well, I mean, we use them in the Cancer Help program mm-hmm. at Commonweal and elsewhere. There is no interest in what, how, quote, good the product is. No. The whole idea is simply to use the arts as a form of self-expression. And so exactly. this is what you keep coming back to, that it's not about good, and in fact, being good at it can be a handicap. Unless you're good at pulling yourself back. Unless you're good at pulling yourself yeah. back. But what it does help for you to be good at, and mm-hmm. you're unbelievably good at it, is having a hundred different things that you could do uh, that enable you to facilitate with this tremendous repertoire of possibilities. Yeah, but you know, like I said, you can have, um, you could have 15 and that would be enough. Okay, but 15. I mean, I've been thinking about this because I'd like to get good at this and mm-hmm. I'm not sure I ever will, but 15 Really understanding how to use 15 of those is a lot. Right. It takes a lot to learn 15 of these things and to feel practiced at it. No? No. No? No, because um, all you have to have a sense of is what's easier and what's more challenging. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you wouldn't start with a group and and line people up and say, okay, turn one at a time and tell a story. Yeah. Right, you would you would start with a a small a, a circle theater activity that engages the the body. Like there's a a very simple one called this is not a 
blank. So you might use a water bottle, or you might say say you were going to use a magic marker. Right? I, I remember this right. exercise. We and did so the this first person says, this is not a magic marker. And then they say they say it's something else, and they make a sound and a movement with it's it. It's a chainsaw. It's a chainsaw, so Rah. then they have to go... Rah. See, you're, you're already into right. it. Okay, and then... So then the next person has to say, this is not a chainsaw, mm -hmm. and they have to copy the first person exactly. So they say, this is not a chainsaw. Rawr! Now, again, here's the technical part of it, right? It's by copying the person before them, then they're in this, then it's much easier for them to come up with something new. Right. Because they've already used their voice in their right, body, right. right? So then they're saying, this is a magic wand. Ding, right. ding, ding. Right. And, and so you go around the circle, and first of all, the things people come up with are inventive. Mm -hmm. and, and funny. And, but they're funny because they're just like so right. out of the box. Right. <laughs> right? Or, or somebody will come up with something really mundane, and not funny or anything, and it's funny just because it's mundane. Right. Because people get into that more imaginative space. Interesting thing, I found with kids, you'll do that game, right? You'll get to the fourth kid, the kid will say, every single one of my ideas has already been taken. <laughs> right? <laughs> Because maybe somebody did a bat and right. somebody did, you know. And then you'll just encourage them, right? And they'll come up with something. Oh, okay, well, you know, it's a fishing rod, you know. And um, and then there's something, as soon as it hits that wall of every one of my ideas has been taken and somebody walks through that wall, people start getting the idea, oh, this magic marker can be anything. Mm. It can be anything in the world, anything you can think of. And this is one of the things I've learned about the imagination is the more you use it, the more you have. Right. It's almost like the anti-entropy. It's like so love. So if I wanted to get good at this, what I should do is take your two-day yeah. facilitator training program. But see, I can already tell you'll be good at it just by... I want to get good at it. And just by the way you did Mischievous Michael, the look <laughs> on your face, and, and you, you put in that little extra sound to the chainsaw. It's no, but like, the, uh, the reason I want to get good at it is that I'm a good facilitator of groups. I, I am. Uh, forgive me, but I'm good at it. But you guys take group facilitation to a place that is so far beyond what I know how to do, and I would really like to figure it out. You know, I've watched you do it. I'm beginning to get it. But it seems to me that for me to actually be able to do it, I have to set a conscious intention that I want to figure this out. Okay, so here's all you have to do. Okay. Okay. You just have to learn a couple of right. tricks, a right. couple of activities. Right. Then you have to dare to lead them. Right. That's all it takes. Right. Because once you do, they'll work. <laughs> and then the feedback you'll get, the delight you'll see in people's eyes right. will just... Um, well, another th reason I it think eggs I you on. is I'm such a good straight man. I am so serious. I am so reserved. I am so all these things that this kind of breaks me out into a yeah. totally different dimension of being. Yeah. You know? So. 
Yeah, and you know, and I, I had a friend who was going down to uh, a school in Johannesburg, and she had she had taken a lot of workshops and she had done this and that and she was going to lead a workshop herself for the first time and she was she'd written out her whole plan and then written all the talking points for every part of her plan she was like an over planner and i think when people are first leading things they often over plan anyway because you just want to be know that you'll have something to say so the thing that i said to her that really helped her was i'm on the phone she's the night before i said listen don't worry i said these activities work so well that even they even work when they're badly led. And that kind of gave her the freedom. And I actually have seen, um, we had two facilitators uh, up in Canada who recently led a two-day training as part of a, a First Nations initiative. They had, they had been to our creative facilita facilitation training two times. Each of them had, had experienced it twice. And then they were going to lead this whole two-day training. They got a lot of the the instructions kind of not super clear, and they were doing a lot of um, you know just self-correcting as they went along. And I was there to kind of help them, but I just sat back and would give them a little coaching during the breaks. So their their skill level in terms of delivering the training. In terms of the content, wasn't super high, but they were also good facilitators. They knew how to hold that beautiful space, and um, it was one of the most powerful two-day express yourself or creative facilitation trainings I've ever seen. How cool that is! And 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 they were not, you know, they didn't have the words yet down, yeah. and um, the. It's also know. the power of beginnings, right? Yeah, and they didn't even yeah. do the beginning that well. They had a really hard time. They couldn't remember how to do the right. the clapping thing, and then mm -hmm. um, and what happened was the group helped them figure it out. Oh, so cool. they had an additional sense mm -hmm. of success. <laughs> so we've talked a little about conscious closing. Yes. Yeah. What is uh, empowering performance, getting our voices into the world? What's that about? Well, that's about um, young people. Uh, particularly, um, oh, but but let me go back to the the um, community arts evenings. Mm -hmm. We do um, theater evening. We do um, an open mic. Mm -hmm. Oh, we do a music and dance evening, and so everybody teaches each other. The the a couple of staff people kind of orchestrate the night, and they they take um, offerings from various youth and various adults and so it's a whole combination of singing together and dancing and it's kind of orchestrated into a whole experience which is all led by the group itself and then we have an open mic and the whole um, thing with the open mic is that it's just about getting up and doing something it's not about being good right. and there have been moments in open mics at, at these youth camps that I have just felt like uh, this moment this moment in and of itself was enough for the whole for being born and everything it's like mm -hmm. all life is worth this moment of this young person singing this lullaby to a group of peers right. getting up and 
saying, oh, this is a song I remember my mother used to sing to me. And then singing this lullaby. And everyone's in tears. Mm. And these kids are sharing things with each other that just wouldn't be allowable in pure culture or wouldn't, you know, people wouldn't think to do. And something really empowering comes from that. Now, you've seen an open mic You've seen open mics at the adult conferences, and mm-hmm. it's like every time we lead a conference and uh, and say let's do an open mic, people will say, "Well, what if nobody'll do anything?" <laughs> and you know, I have to say, there's a part of you know, yeah, well, they always do, but you know, maybe this will be the first time. But it's amazing. My experience in the in the sixteen, seventeen years of doing this is people are literally dying to be more creatively engaged. They sure show up for open mic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who had ever guessed? Who would have ever guessed? And 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 this is the other thing when you see someone do something and it might even it might just be the little idea they come up with in a in a theater game or even a name game going around, you see parts of each other that you normally would that you not never see. That you never before. Right? Yeah. And so you start to see a more whole person. Absolutely. Right? It's not just the person who speaks. Right. Right? It's huge. I mean, I just, the reason I'm so into this is that I feel that you uh, and Charlie and Rick and others have put together something that if it were loosed on the world... (laughs) That's what we're trying uh, to do. (laughs) I know. If it were loosed on the world and widely understood, it could make a big difference. And, of course, all of the elements are already out there. I mean, nothing that you're doing, I think, is new in itself. Exactly. What you're doing is you've brought them together specifically for your work with teenagers, but also through these gatherings with adults and, and uh, young people. And, and what you're doing, it, like most conferences have, let's go to the adult young people thing. Mm-hmm. Most conferences have some purpose, you know, a better strategy for chemical policy reform or right. whatever it is, you know, that, that we're all engaged with. Um, but... Um, this approach, you know, your husband Rick and Grassi's email has this little tagline, if you want social change or if you want cultural change, throw a better party. Right. And so these things are like parties. Yeah. They have, the, and they trust in the spontaneous linkages that will happen among the creative people who have come together. And there's no agenda yeah, for but some let, serious thing other than you say, you know, this is the critical decade ahead and we have to figure out, you know, how to tell better stories about it or whatever the, the language is. But there's a tremendous amount of trust in what will happen spontaneously. Yeah, and I mean, the purpose of these gatherings is to bring a wide variety, a diverse group of people who are creative change makers in one way or another, bring them together and um, 
have people meet each other and then walk away with a greater sense of commitment to their work, feeling more supported, all that, right? And they connect with other people in ways they could not have foreseen. Exactly. So all, it's like let a thousand flowers bloom. Right. All kinds of things come out of it that may in fact have more generative power than if they all sat down to plan a strategy. Okay. However, yeah. I would venture to say that if you... Because there is a place for strategy sessions, right? Okay. So if if you have a strategy session, employ the same methods. Build this in. And your strategy will be stronger, more creative, and more coherent. And there'll be more commitment behind it. I agree. I'll give a little example. Yeah. There was a, um, the Center for... can't think of the name. Call it the Center for... Ethical Leadership. Ethical. Center for Ethical Leadership did a conference, and, and Libba Pincho from BGI asked me to come up on the Saturday or Friday night of the conference to do some work with the group. The purpose of the conference was to bring um, people from the nonprofit sector and funders together from the region, they did it at the Whitby Institute. It was called a confluence, I think, or a convergence. And some people came with, they put money on the table. And they wanted the nonprofits to come up with creative ideas that would be collaborative. They really wanted to support collaboration. And, and they said, if you can, you know, come up with some great ideas, we've got some money on the table. Sunday, you can walk out with some money for these projects you come up with. So, uh, Libba asked me to come and do an evening. I did an evening of theater improv with them. Actually, I threw in a few songs, too, probably a piece chant. And uh, she said that after that evening of theater imp improv, she said the next day, the ideas just exploded. They just flew together. And she said that was what was most interesting to her was the kind of collaborative process very much mimicked the theater improv evening, that there was a kind of joy to it and uh, organic, imaginative quality to it that uh, I would say wouldn't have been there that Sunday or Saturday, whichever it was. The next day was very different as a result of taking that time to uh, play together in a different way. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if it's Anna Halprin, who's a great uh, healing dance uh, yeah, teacher. Yeah, she is. Anna uh, but either Anna or somebody else talked about how she would move from having people do somatic movement exercises mm -hmm. to journaling. journaling. In mm -hmm. fact, somatic movement and then drawing and then journaling. Mm -hmm. And how sort of integrating these things deepened each of them. Right. You know. In a, in a powerful way. Yeah. And I think part of that also is that we all do have different learning styles. Yeah. And um, you're going to get somebody in a workshop. We used to do, I, I, I really learned a lot by doing workshops for AmeriCorps, mm -hmm. uh, where we would do an hour and 15 minute workshop on a theme. It might be using the arts for reflection. It might be using the arts for community building. It might be um, using the arts for self uh for self-regeneration and overcoming burnout. And we, I would have to put together a very, very tight workshop. And um, 
now I don't even remember why I was talking about that. Oh, yes. Um, what I would find is, I remember one using the arts for reflection, where there's one group of people who were doing some, some free writing about, you know, I came up with a theme, what do you love about your job and what don't you like mm-hmm. about your job? And they were free writing and whatever. And this, this one group of women were just, you know, they just weren't, that into it and and then we moved to a visual arts activity and they just like flew into it hmm. and I really learned through those quick workshops where we would pull in different art forms you would just see the engagement level would just build mm-hmm. because people would find their place at the table we won't go through all the amazing chapters in this mm-hmm. book Seize the Fire but in the creative facilitators playbook part which I just want to spend a minute on yeah uh, so the chapters are say it with art, visual arts and crafts, paint it with paint with words, creative writing and poetry, raise the curtain theater improv, imagine change, social issues theater, share our stories, storytelling and witnessing, and join the chorus, music, rhythm and dance. So that gives people an idea of the whole set of uh, uh, of art related activities right. that go into this creative art model Mm -hmm. that you folks have developed. So let's talk for a little bit. We've talked about the substance of it. Let's talk about Pi Global in the world. Mm. How many people have been touched by Pi Global by your estimates? Well, first of all, we did start this work in 19, you know, in the late 90s, and and we started it in North America, um, mainly Seattle and British Columbia. And we trained... We and our colleagues, we all trained a lot of people. And a lot of what those people continue to do, we don't even hear about. Right. And then we'll hear about it. Like, we, we had three or four of our close-in facilitators who forgot to tell us that they had started this group called Metaphor up in Vancouver. They're just marvelous, both facilitators and performance artists. They were reaching sixty to 70,000 teenagers in British Columbia a year mm. through these hip-hop-based programs that were around social justice themes. And so they were making this huge impact. We didn't even, we never even knew about it. Um, and your, so, your website estimates that you've trained more than 10,000 people in 15 years. Oh, yeah, I'm sure we have. Yeah. Yeah. And so they've and, but impacted, we, according to your website, you're estimating a half a million young people. Well, we we did a, a, a charting last year and estimated that last year alone that our people touched um, 225,000 youth. Because actually, um, it doesn't take a lot to be able to begin to take these methods on, and people just take it right into their into their programs. Mm-hmm. Say something about how this connects with social media. Um, in other words, to what degree can social media be used to multiply this, and to what degree is it really a hands-on, face-to-face set of activities? Well, you can learn the activities through social media. Right. right. And, and yet I think that the activities are really face-to-face. It's really the, the high-touch, not the high-tech. And that's what you're seeing. There is a movement a young, among young people. There are story shows. There's open mics. 
There's all the poetry slams. There's There's been a rising movement of this sort of popular arts sharing that's right. been coming out of the younger generation. Right. And it's happening all over the world. Right. A lot of older people don't even know it exists. Right. Where do you... You're 67 years old. Um, I'm 70. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you hope to take this over the next active decade of your life? Well, if I had my way, two things. Uh, if I had my way, I would just get to um, do this kind of play with groups mm-hmm. as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And I would love to go in, I'd like to go into places that would be the places you would never think. Like, I'd love to go and work with people in Congress or, you know, work with uh, with groups that would be considered you know, far too sophisticated for this kind of thing, and yet everybody's human. So I would love to go into kind of get onto bigger and bigger and bigger stages. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, mm-hmm. I realize... Um, I take equal joy in training younger people to just make this their life. Mm-hmm. We, we call this social artistry, mm-hmm. and that a person can take on the, the mantle of being a social artist no matter what age they are, no matter what profession they work in. Um, it means bringing your toolkit together and being willing to muss up the energy, mm-hmm. you know, not... Not, um, you know, what do we do when we're in a meeting? It's boring. Everybody just soldiers through. We go, oh, it's only like another hour. And then we've wasted all that precious time, right? So the social artist would say, wait a minute. You know, I learned something at a workshop two weeks ago and probably won't work with us. But uh, I'm just, you know, it feels like everybody's tired. Would you be willing to try something? You're in nine countries on five mm-hmm. continents, I believe. Yeah. What are the what are the countries where, in your sense, in those nine countries, this has most deeply taken root? Um, well, we've worked most in Uganda, South Africa, Brazil. It's going crazy in Brazil. Mm-hmm. And funny, I was talking with a friend the other day, you know, Brazil already is quite alive with music and dance, mm-hmm. and yet there's something about the way this is structured, there's a the, the model, that they can work with the model to use what's natural in the culture and alive in the culture um, to make things happen, make things like happen for young law. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. that brings up that it has a Dionysian quality, too. Yeah. And, of course, the Dionysian quality brings up that that's access to the soul. Yeah. So it's that willingness to get out of, uh, you know, the kind of mental straitjacket mm-hmm. and allow the Dionysian to emerge. And yeah. from that play, creative yeah. play, comes the access to yeah. the soul. Yeah. You know, and I've talked... Well, also, we've worked a lot in India, um, UK... Canada and the U.S. And I was down in, in Guatemala last year. And, you know, I've talked to various cross-culturalists, and my daughter-in-law has been a very interesting person to relate to around this, because she's Swedish, number one, and number two, she's a cross-culturalist. And so she would say, oh, Peggy, what you do, I think it's just so North American because it's all about 
putting yourself out there. And and then she and I kind of go back and forth on this. And we were down in, in Guatemala, and because uh, it's, it's hard to say what is essentially human and what is a cultural value or a cultural habit or a cultural orientation. But what I have found, um, and the people that I've worked with have found that no matter what country we go to, no matter how far back into the, the bush it is or into the big city or wherever, that there seems to be a delight that people take. Does it work in China When they Japan? express themselves. Oh, yeah. Oh, I yeah. just... I just... I was just with this group of 10 Japanese people who were doing the most. They were social. They were from small NGOs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they were doing things like starting um, building indoor playgrounds in Tokyo so that kids could be out of the radiation mm-hmm. and putting kids on buses up up um, near Fukushima and taking them. And this one woman was working with with um, grandmas from one of the areas where the the tsunami had taken everything and so they were still living in shelters and these grandmas didn't have anything to do anymore. And so this woman said, so what we've discovered is we're knitting with them and they love knitting. And she said, they love knitting and they get so happy when they knit and they're making something beautiful and the color of the yarn and and then I told her that in doing the book I had found this uh, research from, that came out of uh, England um, about that knitting raises the serotonin levels. It's like meditation. It's the repetitive activity has the same and uh, there was there was a beautiful quote. This woman said, knitting is my drug of choice when when I'm feeling pain, because they'd done these studies with women with mm-hmm. cancer. And uh, she found that um, knitting was as pain-relieving as, as drugs were. And so, but so we did it. And this was so cute, because I played, you are not, um, this is not a magic marker with them. Mm-hmm. First of all, they were quite quiet as it went around, and they were so Funny, (laughs) and so expressive. I was wondering, just because um, Asian culture is quite introverted in many senses, I was curious about how it would work. And and uh, And, you know, if you go, they talk about cultural generalizations, which are are, um, that's not stereotypes. It's like been studied cross culturally that yes, they're more introverted. Um, These ten Japanese people, they did that game in the most introverted way Mm -hmm. and it was hysterical Mm. I mean they would just because they would do their instead of doing their activity really big and really loud they'd do it really small but there was an intensity behind it and we were all just cracking up and they loved it because they'd been sitting through meeting after meeting they were here you know with a contingent meeting nonprofits, and they'd been Mm. sitting through many meetings and after we did that, the conversation was just so lively. Mm. Any final reflections for this conversation? Anything we've left out that you'd like to say? Well, you know, the thing I, I think about is uh, there's so many conferences that happen. So much money is put into conferences. So much money is put into youth programs all over the world. 
Um, I really, my dream is that people would wake up to this because it's a difference that can make a difference. I share that hope because, as I say, I, you know, been to a lot of meetings, been to a lot of conferences, mm-hmm. and am frequently bored. Yeah. I'm frequently bored. And um, there's something about this that brings brings soul into the room and um, creates a sense of learning or apprehending from a more integrated place in ourselves yeah. and there's a tremendous amount of joy in it. Yeah. and one leaves these gatherings um, refreshed and with a sense of having made deep soul connections yeah. with other people who may be lifelong friends yes and um, yes and and I believe that it while it's not rocket science, that it does take um, it does take intention and skill yes. to do this. But um, but I think you've brought it together in a way I haven't seen anybody bring it. It takes intention and skill, but it doesn't take that special person. No, it doesn't take. That you don't have to person. be that. I have seen. All kinds of people take this yeah. on and become yeah. so good at it. Yeah. And uh, I found a quote from Rollo May, mm-hmm. who did a lot of work on creativity, mm-hmm. and, and I love it because he said, uh, creative expression is most often accompanied by a feeling of shimmering joy. Mm-hmm. And this is what I see. I've seen it on the faces of kids in war-torn areas and adults with them and people who've had lived through the most you know, the most privation, and we're all capable. That When we go into that place of shimmering joy, there's just something, we just connect. I think as humans, we're meant to experience that. Peggy Taylor, thank you for being with us at the new school. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to a conversation with Peggy Taylor and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Port O' Monkeys. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.